having introduced the letter as a whole last Lord's Day evening, now we plunge away into its contents. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Now, to the twelve tribes has more often than not been taken to mean that the letter was addressed to particular Jewish Christian churches of whose situation James was informed. However, others, and I think the commentators I trust the most, have taken the address to mean that James was intended to be a circular letter to Christian churches generally, Jew and Gentile alike. It's certainly true that dispersion was already in the first century a technical term for the population of Jews living outside of the Holy Land. From the time of the return from the exile in Babylon, the Jewish people had been divided between those who remained in the land God had given them and those who lived among the nations. The term diaspora, a version of this same word, is used still today to speak of the Jewish people who live outside the land of Israel. There are certainly indications that James might be taken to have been writing to Jewish Christians. For example, he describes their meeting as a synagogue. The word the ESV translates assembly in chapter 2, verse 2, is the Greek word synagogue. That, of course, may be just James's term, he being a Jewish Christian, after all, for a Christian assembly. There is otherwise very little in the letter that would help us to identify any particular church or even any particular problems that would be specific to a church that uh, the letter was being addressed to. The exhortations are general. They're universally applicable. We know from Acts 15 that James welcomed Gentiles as Gentiles into the church, and he regarded them as the true and authentic descendants of Abraham, so much uh, so um, as Jewish Christians were. So we know the New Testament often refers to largely Gentile uh, congregations as the new Israel. So whether James was written first to Jewish believers in congregations about which James knew something, or whether it was intended to be read by all Christian congregations, Jewish and Gentile alike, is a question more interesting than it is important. Whatever or whomever the original recipients of the letter, dispersion reminds us that we Christians are all exiles living away from home. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, once again, uh, for those uh, younger ears that may be attuned uh, to these sorts of things, brothers includes Christian sisters. It's a form of the generic masculine that is employed throughout the Bible. However, it's unmistakable in the New Testament that Christian women are included among the brethren, as they are sometimes addressed specifically as among the brethren to whom the letter is addressed. There is, as you know, a fundamental equality of the sexes, both taught and illustrated in the Bible from the very beginning, and uh, all the more noteworthy because such high views 
of women and their spiritual equality with men were unparalleled in the ancient world. So in that sense, the use of the term to describe a congregation of men and women is a compliment paid to the women, all the more powerful for its being a mere form of customary address. Brothers, as you will notice, is the typical way in which James addresses his readers all throughout the letter. Look at verse 9 and verse 16 and verse 19 of chapter 1 and then verses 1 and 14 of chapter 2 and so on. The fact that James begins immediately with the trials of believers suggests that either the Christians to whom he was writing were suffering some trials he knew something about, or he was just assuming that as they were Christians, they would be suffering trials of various kinds. To become a Christian in the first century was invariably to risk difficulties, some petty, some serious, some even life-threatening. That the Christian life is going to be, in the nature of the case, difficult, as you know the Bible teaches us many times. When you meet various trials, doesn't quite capture the sense. The verb suggests that the troubles overtake us even by surprise. It's used of the man in the Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan. It's used of the man on the road to Jericho who fell among robbers. So far as we're concerned, the troubles simply happen to us. And in many cases, they come out of the blue. But in fact, James is going to tell us they are the will of God. Count it all joy, by the way, is the first of 46 imperatives in the letter. James will be telling us to do something or not to do something many times in his five short chapters. But many of them, as this one, are softened by the form of address. My brothers, count it all joy. All joy means true joy or pure joy. It does not mean nothing but joy. Throughout the Bible, God's people are shown capable of joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure at the same time. Obviously, a trial would not be a trial if it was something easily born or if one could be cheerfully distracted and happy throughout. The joy James is talking about is not some superficial gaiety. It's a deeper gladness capable of cohabitation in the soul with real pain and real sorrow and a real sense of loss. Remember how Paul describes the Christian as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Joy in sorrow is the solid underlayment, that sense of ultimate well-being upon which rests the pain and the sense of loss. We'll have reason to return to this point in a subsequent sermon, but the word translated trial here in verse 2 is a form of the same word group that gives us tempt in verse, verses 13 and 14. The term trial or temptation is the same word translated differently depending on the context, and it has to be translated in both ways in James. What trials these believers were facing 
is not specifically said, so the letter may suggest a number of them. But um, James is making a general point. Trials of various kinds will meet us all. So, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the word translated testing, the testing of faith, could mean a process by which it is determined whether a person's faith is genuine or authentic or spurious and false. Here, however, it's more likely that the term refers to the process of refining, such as the refining of gold or silver, designed to eliminate the dross until only the precious metal remains. In other words, our lives are heated in the cauldron of life until what does not belong to a Christian character has been separated out and only the pure faith and holiness remain. That's the way Peter uses the same word in chapter 1, verse 7 of his first letter. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The sense of verse 4 seems to be that the true fruit of affliction in a believer's life will be harvested only by the one who perseveres through the trial. It is when we are steadfast that our afflictions produce their intended results. Luther reminds us that trouble can make a man bitter or better. They do the latter only when people persevere through them and are not undone by them. We read these verses and more last Lord's Day evening when introducing the letter of James as the New Testament's only book of wisdom. Wisdom, remember, we said, was the Bible's word for skillful living, the skill that produces true godliness in a world that is uncongenial to godliness, the skill that helps God's people to reflect his character when even their own hearts are so often utterly unhelpful. We mentioned the use of hokmah, the Hebrew word for wisdom, in Proverbs 30, where it describes the skill that so many animals have, by which they make a success of life in very often hostile environments. We nowadays use the word instinct to describe animals' fabulous adaptations to their environment, but the Bible's word is much better, much, theologi- much more theologically rich. It's not instinct, it's wisdom that God has given them. Another way we can get a handle on the meaning of this term so important for an understanding of James. And James will introduce the term in verse 5. And of course, as a Jew who would have spoken in Hebrew and Aramaic, he would have used the word hakmah. Another way of getting a handle is by noticing that the Hebrew word for wisdom, the wisdom, say, that is taught in the book of Proverbs, is used in Exodus 31, verse 3, and in a number of other places in the Hebrew Bible to describe the skill of an artist or an artisan. Wisdom is the ability that God has given such people by which they can fashion beautiful things out of the rough materials with which they work. Wood, 
or stone or metal or fabric. At one time, Michelangelo's David, I know a number of you will have seen it in the academy in Florence. You've certainly seen pictures of it, this absolutely perfect statue of of the male human being. At one time, that statue was just a rough, enormous block of marble. But Michelangelo, with his wisdom, could see that figure in that block of marble. And then with his hands and with his tools could bring the splendid male form to life. Most of us, no matter how much instruction we were given, could never have produced anything remotely resembling that finished product. The proportions would be off. One eye would be bigger than the other. One arm would be thinner than the other. The body would not all be fashioned to the same scale. Some chips could not be smoothed out without damaging the total effect, and so on. If we'd had made the statue, people would have thought that David must have been a severely deformed human being. But Michelangelo had wisdom that we do not, wisdom indeed that very few have ever had. Well, in the same way, the wise man or woman can see the godly life in his or her own mind's eye, can see what it looks like, can see what true godliness is and what true godliness does, and then know how to bring that into expression in the push and pull of ordinary life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on. That's what the Bible means by wisdom, the art of godly living. Again, it is more than simply obedience to the commandments of God. It is truly an art, the faculty of executing a plan, the creative and imaginative practice of a Christ-like life. It's one thing to know that you ought not to give in to sexual temptation. That is the law. It's another thing to know how not to do that in a world beset on all sides with sexual temptation. That is wisdom. It's one thing to know that you should keep the Lord's Day holy. That's the law. It's another thing to know how to do that. A great many people have known the former, but not the latter. They were committed to God's law, but they lacked the wisdom necessary to fashion a true obedience to that law in the run of weekly life. That is wisdom, the savoir-faire, this knowing how to do what we have been called to do. James is interested less in the law questions of life, what is to be done and what not to be done. He's more in the, interested in the wisdom questions of life. How ought we to keep the commandments of God? Wisdom is also interested in more than simply the techniques of godliness, important as they are. James is also interested in that part of wisdom that concerns a fundamental and accurate grasp of the way of life in this world. How does life go in this world? 
It's this sort of question you remember that occupies the preacher in Ecclesiastes, another one of the Old Testament wisdom books. And it's this insight into the ways of the world and of God's management of his world that is the other part, the other dimension of true wisdom. The wise man or woman is the one who doesn't find the world an utterly confusing place because he or she knows what to expect. Indeed, biblical wisdom often comes from the experience of initial confusion in a believer's mind and heart. And then after the confusion comes insight, recognition, and understanding. Or if we were to use a modern term, we might say that biblical wisdom is perspective. Woody Allen once quipped, Life is full of misery, misery, loneliness, and suffering. And it's all over much too soon. Well, true as that sentence no doubt is, its meaning absolutely depends on one's perspective. Trials are an inevitable part of every human life, but it matters immensely what you understand them to be. Why you understand them to be such a regular part of human experience? Why is life full of misery and suffering? And why do we still not want it to end? There are very different answers to those questions. Wisdom knows the truth of the matter. And he or she, and as he or she suffers, the wise Christian thinks very differently about his or her pain. James begins with this second part, this second dimension, this perspective dimension of wisdom in verses 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Of course, it produces more than just Steadfastness, it produces all the traits of true godliness and produces them, the whole Bible teaches us, as nothing else can or does. Malcolm Muggeridge, near the end of his life, in a letter to William F. Buckley, Jr., wrote this. As an old man, Bill, looking back on one's life, it's one of the things that strikes you most forcibly that the only thing that's taught one anything is suffering. Not success, not happiness, not anything like that. The only thing that really teaches one what life's about, the joy of understanding, the joy of coming in contact with what life really signifies, is suffering, affliction. He also wrote this. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. Because everything that corrects the tendency of man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Mugridge was a Christian when he wrote those two remarks, and it's highly doubtful that he would have thought those things or said those things had he not been a Christian, and had not begun to look at his life in a fundamentally different way, from a fundamentally different perspective. It's an insight 
long known to Christians. And it's been put in a thousand different ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in this way. Pain is a holy angel who shows treasures to men which otherwise remain forever hidden. Through him, men have become greater than through all the joys in the world. Nevertheless, as often as this point is made in the Bible, one thing we know well about Holy Scripture's teaching about wisdom is that at many points it overlaps the commonsensical recognitions of people generally. As we pointed out before, many of the Proverbs can be found sometimes virtually word for word in Babylonian and Egyptian books of wisdom from the period. There are many sayings you and I learned as Americans growing up in the United States that are true wisdom, even if they're not specifically citations from the Bible. They tend to state in other words some of the Proverbs. A penny saved is a penny earned. Don't judge a book by its cover. It's better to be safe than sorry. Many hands make light work. The pen is mightier than the sword. And on and on. And so it's going to be in James. In some places, as is the case in Proverbs, James gives us teaching that is indisputably and uniquely Christian. In other places, in his teaching, any man or woman of good sense, whatever his or her religion or irreligion, will nod assent. And that's proof, of course, that what James gives us is genuine wisdom. That its practicality is such that anyone can and will acknowledge it. This is very important. It's one of the grand demonstrations that the Christian life is and ought to be human life at its best, at its truest, in its most authentic form. That is what we believe, after all, is it not? That to be a Christian is to be and to live as a human being ought to be and ought to live. No wonder that creatures made in the image of God who have the character of God stamped upon their very nature, should frequently recognize the truth of this world and of human life. If, alas, only partially and only occasionally because of the sinful distortions of their perspective. And so it is that even this piece of wisdom Namely, the troubles and afflictions are essential to the moral and spiritual improvement of human beings is hardly unknown to non-Christians. So the poet, reflecting no particularly Christian conviction, nevertheless writes, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. There was an old Latin adage from the classical period that many Christians later adopted for themselves. Winket qui patitur. He who suffers, conquers. 
But in the hands of biblical writers, such as James, the idea that suffering leads to spiritual, intellectual, and moral depth and completeness is given a deeper meaning because the cause of our suffering is always attributed to our Heavenly Father. The purpose of it is His purpose in our lives, namely our sanctification. How different, for example, the simple truth that we learn from our trials, such as might be confessed by any unbeliever, this insight from Robert Murray McShane. Your afflictions may only prove that you are more immediately under the Father's hand. There is no time that the patient is such an object of tender interest to the surgeon as when he is bleeding beneath his knife. So you may be sure if you are suffering from the hand of a reconciling God that his eye is all the more bent on you. Or this from C.S. Lewis. Though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It's not wearied by our sins or by our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. It matters immensely, does it not, that our afflictions and trials are not simply misfortunes impossible to avoid, but are in fact the will of our Heavenly Father who seeks in them our eternal good? The simple point that James is making is that because they are so essential to reaching the goal to which every Christian ought to be aspiring, namely a finished Christ-like character, we shouldn't resent our trials. To be sure, he puts his point in a startling, attention-grabbing way, typical of the wisdom literature, by saying that we ought to be happy for our miseries. But the point is obvious. Why should we be happy? Because they are the indispensable instrument of our spiritual growth and maturity. Think of the man or woman who knows he or she needs to lose weight. In the ordinary run of daily life, that means for most people, certainly meant for me, that they will have to get used to being hungry and feeling hungry. It's no fun to feel hungry all the time. But if one really wants to lose weight, there is no better feeling than hunger. It means the body is not getting all the food it wants, which is precisely what weight loss requires. I know 15 of you are going to come to me after the service to tell me that you could lose weight without feeling hungry. You lie. <laughs> or more seriously, we're now all too well acquainted with how awful, terrible, many of our medical cures have become. Chemotherapy, radiation, major surgery may very well cure us of the disease that we have. But as we are nowadays want to say, the cure 
can be worse than the disease. At least it can feel worse than the disease. All the more nowadays when our diseases can be detected before any symptoms appear. There are a great many people who will tell you they suffered much more from the cure than they ever did from the disease. James doesn't say how these trials do this for us because perhaps there are so many different sorts of trials and they work in different ways. But it isn't difficult for us, is it? to see how they work to foster our spiritual maturity. There are certainly unending examples of trials that have humbled proud men and women. They reveled in their success until it was taken away, and they were left with the realization that they were, in fact, small, powerless, and utterly dependent upon the good graces of God. Exactly what a Christian is supposed to think and feel All of the time. Think of Chuck Colson, for example. From the White House to prison and all of his humiliation reported day after day in the newspapers and pictured on the screen of every American's television set. If humility is the bottom grace of the Christian life, as virtually any Christian authority will tell you it is, then it's not very hard to see how trials before which we find ourselves helpless, impotent, are not only useful, but essential to the cultivation of humility. Rich, healthy, successful people are rarely as humble as they ought to be, rarely realize the full extent of their dependence upon God. I've had this experience of being humbled by my troubles, and I know that you have as well. But it's not hard to see, surely it's not hard to see that every Christian grace can be increased, deepened, purified through trial and testing. Faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ is never practiced in its purity and power until that moment comes when all that you have left is your confidence in the faithfulness of God and in the love of Christ. When everything else has been lost to you, when everything else has failed, and only the Lord remains, how clear it becomes to a Christian man or woman that Jesus Christ is in fact our only hope, which conviction, we should never forget, is the foundation of everything in the Christian life. As Samuel Rutherford put it, faith's necessity in a fair day, is never known aright. The evil of sin is really grasped only. It is certainly rarely grasped, even by serious, devout Christians, until one is forced to see its doleful effects in life, until one's nose is held in the stench. And that is what afflictions do, especially those that follow and result from the commission of sin. Or the glory of heaven is rarely appreciated fully, especially in a happy Christian life, until the earth is made to appear to us sad and dark and foreboding, as it so often is when our circumstances turn against us. I can say that as more of my loved ones have died, 
the less attractive this world seems to me to be and the more ready I find myself to leave it. I'm sure many of you have had the same experience. The darkness and the loss that death visits on our life has a peculiar power to shape our perspective on life in this world. Similarly, the reality of God, the power of prayer, the meaning of divine grace, the bitterness of pride, real understanding and sympathy for others. A hundred other fundamental convictions are taught, are nourished, are implanted deep in the soul by the afflictions of our lives, and a great many saints will tell you by nothing else so powerfully or permanently. In fact, there is a sense in which the power and truth and beauty of the Word of God is never seen nearly as clearly by a Christian as when he or she is suffering in the throes of some affliction. John Bunyan, in his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, recalls of the time of his imprisonment, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place and condition to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real or apparent to me than he is now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns. But, alas, the world and the church are full of people who have suffered trials but whose intended benefits they never realized because they didn't persevere through them and didn't count it joy to suffer them. They didn't have this perspective on their trials. They never looked to see or prayed to feel that it was God's hand upon them. Never realized that this trouble was intended to mature them, to perfect them, to complete them. In the face of tragedy and human sorrow, our first instincts are two. To blame someone for the pain we are experiencing and to seek in some way to lessen our pain. But what if the real importance of that trial, at least for us, is the training of our souls? In such a case, in our two great concerns, fixing blame and finding a way out, we have missed what really matters. The great opportunity that has been given to us, the heating up of our faith so as to purify away the dross, is then lost. We still suffer the pain, but to no one's benefit, including our own. The trial has been for nothing. It has accomplished nothing in us. And the saddest thing is that we'll never get back that opportunity, never realize that spiritual gain that was there for us to obtain. Believe me, if such spiritual insight, if such power of faith, if such deep feeling, and true conviction were possible to obtain without pain and trial, there would be much less trial in a believer's life. What do we read in the Bible? But though he caused grief, 
He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And in all their afflictions, he was afflicted too. You must never take a statement like this one in James to mean that God doesn't feel the pain or appreciate the pain that he has ordered for us to suffer or that our, our afflictions are for him simply a naked calculation of pain and reward. We're prevented from ever thinking that the Lord doesn't care about our suffering simp- simply because he's accomplished or is accomplishing something good by it. We're prevented from thinking that by the suffering of the Lord Jesus who bore greater afflictions than we ever shall and we are taught in the word of God was made by them our merciful and sympathetic and understanding high priest. If suffering, and his was terrible suffering, was necessary for even a perfect man to grow into maturity and completeness of mind and heart, how much more necessary must they be for you and for me? May I say as an aside that a trial or an affliction often, if not usually, involves others besides ourselves. God may have many purposes in a single trial. He may be doing many things in many lives at the same time. But in a Christian's life, whatever else the trouble may be doing, it is a testing and purifying of our faith. It is always that. So take James' point. There is both a truth here and a summons. Wisdom requires that we remember that our trials have a holy purpose. Many purposes, perhaps, but always are growing deeper in Christian faith and love. And therefore, the summons to accept them, therefore, in a spirit of hope and expectation that we will become better Christians than we have been before. And with that understanding, with that perspective, that wisdom, and with that spirit, we then endure them, persevere through them, looking for and praying for what God has for us in them. Many of you know John Newton's wonderful poem, These Inward Trials. It's a poetic reflection, I think, on James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more... With his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my hopes, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst seek thy all in me. John Newton was speaking of what he had himself learned over the course of his life. 
And if that were true of that great man's life, how much more it must be true of yours and mine. There is a world of wisdom, of heartbreak to be sure, but of true wisdom in the opening words of the letter of James. And great hope for us. We live in a world full of trials and afflictions. We cannot escape it. But how wonderful that in those trials, in that sorrow, in that pain, we have the hope of a greater and deeper godliness and faith and love. The result of standing fast in a trial is to conquer in still further, harder battles to come. And those battles will come. They cannot be escaped. So let's win them. And we shall, if we endure each trial as it comes, looking up to God from whom it comes, to sustain us and to use the trial to complete and to perfect and to mature us, keeping our eyes always wide open to that truth, ready to be changed by it. It's a famous story in Holland of a little boy who used to play by a great windmill. And his parents would warn him again and again of the great danger of there, of being there by those enormous blades as they swept around. But he was not a, t- a particularly obedient boy. And one day, having sort of lost all sense of where he was, he got closer and closer and closer the windmill until suddenly he got hit by a great force on the back and got lifted up into the air and all he could think was that he was caught by that blade and now was going to have the life crushed out of him until he turned around and saw that it wasn't the windmill blade it was his father who had grabbed him by the back of the shirt and lifted him up It is all the difference in the world to know that your troubles, your trials, your sorrows, your pain are not the result of some impersonal, blind, and uncaring force, but actually have come to you from the hand of your heavenly Father, God himself. Amen.